This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Today is Monday, March 9th, 2020. On this day in 1945, the United States executed the single deadliest airstrike in history on the city of Tokyo, Japan. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Today we're covering the American firebombing of Tokyo during World War II. To the Americans, it was dubbed Operation Meeting House. To the Japanese, it will forever be remembered as the Great Tokyo Air Raid. Now let's go back to that night, March 9th, 1945. At 5.35 p.m. local time, American bombers took off from the tiny Pacific island of Saipan. They encountered some mild turbulence en route to Tokyo, but otherwise conditions and visibility were clear. Even though the planes were flying at low altitude, around 6,000 feet, they were high enough to avoid the extremely gusty winds on the ground. This was the first low-altitude bombing raid that the Americans had flown. Their previous high-altitude precision raids over Tokyo had failed miserably. For one thing, conditions were usually too windy for bombs dropped at that altitude to hit their targets. Plus, the Japanese had one of the most advanced and effective air defense systems in existence, a defense system formulated to fend off high-altitude raids. The architect of this low-altitude bombing raid was Curtis LeMay. LeMay had led several dangerous and successful missions across Germany and North Africa over the course of World War II. Because of his fearless effectiveness, he was put in charge of all strategic air attacks against the Japanese home islands. LeMay was known to his troops as Old Iron Pants because of his unflappability under pressure he attempted to drill that composure into his troops. When they weren't flying practice missions, LeMay constantly kept his pilots on their toes by training them to adapt to chaotic situations. He believed it was the only way for them to be effective in combat. They had to be so prepared for the chaos and terror of their flight missions that their actions became second nature. Training his pilots to fly at low altitude was no different. It was a slow, grueling process spread out over many smaller missions. The pilots weren't entirely aware of the reasoning for this new training, but they knew to follow LeMay's orders. He had his reasons. LeMay did indeed have his reasons for introducing the low-flying strategy. He knew that Japanese architecture relied mainly on combustible material, such as wood and paper. 
Also, Japanese munitions weren't just confined to factories on the outskirts of town. Production was spread out between homes, with small factories peppering dense urban areas. Low-flying planes would circumvent the wind interference and air defenses that had foiled previous bombing raids, allowing the U.S. to effectively burn Tokyo to the ground. It was an unorthodox strategy, and LeMay knew that the raids would be costly. In fact, intelligence officers calculated that up to 70% of his pilots could be killed. But it wasn't just LeMay's pilots whose lives were at stake. By its very nature, the type of raid that LeMay was proposing could decimate the Japanese civilian population. Still, LeMay believed it was the only way for the U.S. to defeat Japan. So, just after midnight, as March 9th turned to the early morning of the 10th, the first low-flying American bombers reached Tokyo and immediately launched a scene of death and destruction unlike anything seen before. The American planes dropped thousands of pounds of firebombs throughout Tokyo. They created an X-shape of fires, which not only served as a target for other bomber planes, but allowed those fires to spread in the fastest and most destructive way possible. The fires spread inexorably throughout the city, propelled by the night's heavy winds, and, just as LeMay had suspected, the city's wood and paper buildings burned up like kindling. Within a half hour from the start of the bombing, the fire was too large to be contained. Within an hour, most of eastern Tokyo had been destroyed or was burning to the ground. In a three-hour period, American pilots dropped 1,665 tons of bombs. The casualties were so severe that many pilots reported smelling burning flesh all the way from the cockpits of their aircrafts. Most of those who weren't immediately killed by falling bombs were killed while trying to evacuate on foot. The dense smoke made it nearly impossible to see more than a few feet ahead, and anyone who fell was trampled. Many of those who were fortunate enough to make it to air raid shelters died of smoke inhalation, and those who fled to parks or other open spaces were killed when the wind blew the flames and heat in their direction. Others died after being trapped under fallen structures, and still more succumbed to injuries sustained during the fire, considering it was days before many of them were able to access treatment. The only people who managed to survive were those who hid in rivers or canals. And even then, they were forced to return to a city that had, for the most part, been burned to the ground. Coming up, we'll examine the impact of Curtis LeMay's strategy for the firebombing of Tokyo. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. 
On this day in 1945, Curtis LeMay ordered his pilots to firebomb Tokyo, decimating the city and its civilian population. LeMay was asked by the New York Times how he could justify a strategy that killed most of his men and so many innocent civilians. He replied, if the war is shortened by a single day, the attack will have served its purpose. There's no way to know how many people were killed during Operation Meeting House, but the estimates range up to 200,000. Almost 16 square miles of Tokyo were burnt beyond recognition. Furthermore, it left over a million people homeless. Survivors were forced to evacuate the city entirely. The firebombing of Tokyo was the most deadly and destructive bombing campaign in history. But most shocking of all, it didn't lead directly to a Japanese surrender. While it was a devastating blow for Japan and its collective morale, the Japanese army continued fighting, and the Americans engaged in several more low-altitude firebomb raids, which eventually culminated in the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It wasn't until August 14, 1945, over five months after Operation Meeting House and a week and a half after the bombing of Hiroshima, that Japan officially surrendered. It took some time for the goals of LeMay's low-altitude strategy to come to fruition. But in the end, they did. In an attempt to explain the ambiguity of wartime decision-making, Prussian historian Karl von Clausewitz wrote in 1832, War is the realm of uncertainty. Three-quarters of the factors on which action in war is based are wrapped in a fog of greater or lesser uncertainty. A sensitive and discriminating judgment is called for, a skilled intelligence to scent out the truth. But LeMay never attempted to justify his decision based on the ambiguity of war. When asked about his methods years later, LeMay said, quote, Killing Japanese didn't bother me very much at the time. I suppose if I had lost the war, I would have been tried as a war criminal. Every soldier thinks something of the moral aspects of what he's doing. But all war is immoral. And if you let that bother you, you're not a good soldier. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast Original, Survival. Today in True Crime is a ParCast Original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. 
Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 